So I mentioned earlier we were, we were in Orlando for a few days. We were, in there, we were there a few days longer, or a day longer, a day and a half longer than we wanted to be because uh, we just had all these flight issues and I think everybody blamed it on how cold it was here. I don't know, you know. Um, you never know what's going on with that. But we were sitting there on our way out there. Uh, we'd already had one flight cancellation and we were just on a flight delay, which I think is just called flying now, you know. And uh, so we, 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 get up to the, uh, we get up to the gate and there, there's a man and a woman that are in a wheelchair waiting and we were just happened to be sitting next to them and I just got to talking to them a little bit. They're really sweet people. And um, it, it turned out that, um, you know, the, the airplane finally landed and everybody kind of cheered, you know, everybody gets really into it now. And, uh, but it turned out it didn't matter because there was no crew. And so it was like, well, we have, you know, the guy, and you can tell he's just like scared to death as he's talking to everybody. And he's like, so here's the thing, the plane landed, we're here, but we have no crew. And everybody lets out a collective groan. Oh, you know, because we've already been waiting for a long time. Um, and then about 15 minutes later, we see this pilot just kind of run up to the gate. And um, this woman in the wheelchair, um, well, I don't know how to describe it. I'm just going to tell you what happened. But um, she was so excited that she literally hopped up out of her wheelchair and ran over to the pilot and hugged him. Um, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I did not lay hands on this woman, pray for her before that happened. There was nothing like that going on. Um, but he was the one that was going to be able to save the day, right? We finally had our pilot. The problem was, as this woman soon found out after she sat down and she was so excited, was that we needed two pilots. And so two hours later, our other pilot comes in and, you know, saves the day with the other guy, you know, as a total of three hours later. This is my point. We are always looking for someone to save the day, right? At, at the end of the day, we're always looking for someone to save the day. So I want to start out by asking this question, which is just that. Who do you look to to save the day for you? Who is that person for you in your life or that thing um, that maybe even without realizing it, that's what you default to. That's who you're looking for uh, to save the day. We're going we're gonna to touch on the story this morning of David and Goliath, which on the face of it is a story about heroes. Okay. And, and it's a story that a lot of you may have like heard, you're familiar with. Maybe some of you are not familiar with it at all um, because you didn't grow up in a, in a context where you were kind of getting this in a Sunday school way. But on the face of it, this is a story about heroes. It's really the story about the triumph in some ways of good over evil. But the story really presents us with something deeper, which is really just this, this probe into the default setting of the human heart, which is simply this, is that we long for heroes, right? We long for somebody that's going to come in and make everything better. Somebody that's going to save the day. I mean, there's a reason why in the last like 10 years, like there's been a total of like three movies released in Hollywood that haven't been Marvel movies, right? Like there's something to that. I'm not making, I'm not, you know, I'm not hitting on Marvel movies. There's some really great Marvel movies, but there's something about the theme that we are so drawn to, right? And it's not just Marvel movies, right? It's, it's anything where we have this person come in and they are the ones that are going to bring life back to normal or they're going to present us with a vision for the future that we've always wanted, that we've always dreamed of, right? 
And so this story really, it, it presents us with something similar to that in the sense that we long for someone who will just really, in a sense, pilot the plane of our life and get us to the destination that we most long for. And so what we're going to do as we look at the story of David and Goliath is we're going to look at three heroes today in order to see really at the end of the day the one hero we, we actually need. And so let me just pick up here. For, if you've turned there, 1 Samuel 17, I'm going to pick up and read. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 11. And this is what it says. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and, and uh, Ezekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Verse 10, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Oh man, we're gonna stop there. We want to look at our first hero of the story, which is this dude named Goliath. And what we read here is that Goliath have this monstrosity of a champion, is what they call him, of a hero named Goliath. And he's just described for us here in some detail as just this brute of a man. So, some commentators, uh, when they talk about his, uh, his stature, and trying to figure out what, what it means that said he, he stood six cubits in a span. They, they say that he was potentially 11 feet, nine inches tall. That's pretty big, right? We're all thinking, what could he have done in the NBA, right? <laughs> um, and they, they describe his armor and his weaponry. And, it, and really what, what the text does, it gives us just this overwhelming sense of who he was as a man, who he was as a warrior, right? This was a dude who was prepared for combat. That, that was his identity. That, that's almost what, what he was made to do. That's what he was born to do. That's what he built his life up into. That's what he trained to be. He was prepared for combat. And he was not someone who was expected to lose, right? If you were a Philistine, Goliath represented a lot of things for you. Goliath represented your safety. He represented your confidence. He kind of represented your secret weapon. We got this guy, right? He ultimately was representative of your victory. How can you lose when you have a man such as this, right? And you can imagine 
the, even the bravado that must have existed in the Philistine camp when they would compare their man, Goliath, uh, you know, with the Israeli army. I mean, they didn't have anybody, right? You can just imagine the confidence that they were just going into this, this battle line with. There was nobody like Goliath. He had this physical stature as well as the latest in all of his armor technology for the day, right? This, this heavy, robust, this impenetrable bronze helmet along with this massive coat of mail, this heavy coat of mail. And then they describe sort of this menacing kind of javelin that, that really it was kind of representative of this intimidation, this, this intimidating image that he had. And of course, Goliath also, I mean, he had a little bravado, right? He had a mouth to match his stature. He verbally harassed Israel. And he does this interesting thing where he proposes that they settle their differences in a one-on-one kind of a heavyweight title championship match, right? And so what Goliath in a lot of ways, you know, for us represents, even though he's the hero of the Philistines, he also kind of represents this classic villain character for us, right? Somebody that we are just kind of move back from, that we have a lot of fear of, somebody who we think is going to impose who he is upon us and we're going to be harmed in the process. If we're being really honest, though, and here's what's interesting, and especially if you look at this from the perspective of the Philistines, is that Goliath in some ways is also, even though he might be portrayed here as the villain, in some ways he's also the hero that we want. You see how I backed up when I said that? He's the hero that we want. If we're honest... Goliath might even be the hero that we prefer. Do you know what I mean? Someone who is aggressive, someone who doesn't back down, someone who is physically imposing, someone that challenges our enemy, right? When it comes to our sense of well-being, I mean, I don't know. We don't care about Goliath's morality, do we? We don't care about Goliath's character, We just want someone who will protect us from what we believe is our greatest threat without ever imagining that when we remove morality and we remove character from the equation, our heroes can become our biggest threat. We remember last week when God sent Samuel. Remember how he sent Samuel to anoint David as king? Remember Samuel? He went before the sons of Jesse. He was so sure that David's brother Uh, Eliab was the one God chose because he had the physical appearance of a king, right? He looked like a king. He dressed like a king. He had the stature of a king. Like how I say the king has this stature, right? I don't know. I'm watching Popeye cartoons my whole life, right? But he had the stature of a king, right? Instead, God did something different. You know why? Because God always does something different than how we think, than how we process. God chose a shepherd, someone whose character came before his charisma. What Goliath does is Goliath reminds us of how often we are wrong when it comes to the heroes that we choose and how often we choose our heroes based on those things that provide us a sense of maybe security and comfort and well-being in the moment without discounting that there might be something that the Lord has for us that's going to be even more sure, that's going to be even more safe, that's gonna provide us with even more comfort. 
So the first person that we see come into this narrative is Goliath. And we call him a hero because in a sense, he is a hero. He's the hero of the Philistines. He's the champion of the Philistines. And we have this uncomfortable relationship with Goliath, if we want to be honest, because we actually like some of his qualities. It's probably hard for us to admit that, maybe. But we do. We appreciate some of the qualities that Goliath brings to the table, especially if our last name is Philistine. We don't see Goliath as the villain that we typically see, but we see him as the hero that we've always wanted. Then we move to David, the second hero of our story. Let's pick up. I'm going to move ahead a little bit in in chapter 17 to verse 32. And let's pick up there. And it says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail him, because, fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Well, that is not Goliath, right? Everything we just heard about Goliath and then just just this sort of awesome, terrible, imposing, intimidating beast of a man. Then we get David, right? We get David, who is really, in so many ways, the way he's described, it's just the exact opposite of this beast of a man named Goliath. The contrast couldn't be more different between the two. David was already anointed king, so let's remember that. But it it would be years until he took over the throne. So we read here what happened was that that David, if you could read before this, the part that we skipped was that David's father, Jesse, sends him on an errand to bring his older brother some food, get a report from the front lines, ask him how everything's going. Nobody thinks too much about David coming in because, again, at this point, he's just, he's a musician. He's a sheep herder. Um, He's not doing a lot when it comes to uh, watching over Israel, uh, protecting Israel. He's not in that role yet, Right? But we get our first clue of why God chose David in verse 26 when he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So this is the first time really we've gotten this sense of, of what is happening and what is stirring in David's heart. Because remember, God picked this brother out of all of his brothers. 
And we're not really sure why yet until we get some dialogue from David to kind of show where his heart was at for the Lord. David was righteously angry and jealous for God's glory. David sees Israel being slandered by Goliath as, as an actual word against the Lord. He's saying, hey, because we're the armies of the Lord, when this dude comes up and he's like throwing all this stuff at us, it's like he's doing it to God. We can't just stand around and be cool with this. That's what he's saying. And this is my favorite part, because when, <laughs> when Saul gets the news that David is willing to fight with Goliath, I mean, he just takes, poor David, he takes one look at David and is like, I love your spirit, kid, but you're a kid, right? Like, I get it. I, I, I like it. I like the confidence tracking with you on that. But this is, I mean, how can you go against this experienced warrior, right? He's like standing back, right? Kind of like when Samuel was looking at all David's brother and David. And he's like, man, I'm, I don't know. I'm not getting this. Saul stands back. And once again, he's looking at man's appearance. He's looking at what we would be looking at and going, man, I don't know how this is going to work, right? Like, I, I, I don't know how you are going to defeat this giant. I'm not seeing it. I, like, as far as I can see physically, this dude has so much more than you have to offer. But David's like, here's the thing, right? Kind of just pushes his resume like over to Saul, right? And he goes, look, I've torn apart bears and lions with my bare hands. It turns out David is a beast, right? We just didn't know it yet, right? But he's not a beast like Goliath, right? He's a humble beast, in that sense, right? He tells Saul, what does he say? He said, it was the Lord who delivered me. It's interesting when we go back to the first 11 verses and Goliath says, send me your man. Send me your man. And David steps up and says, well, I'm your man, but don't get all jacked up about that because I'm not just your man. I'm your man who has the Lord. By his side. David was a mere mortal, but he had somebody who was not mere and was not mortal, who was with him, who was standing by him, who would be fighting for him. And that made all the difference. It was the Lord who delivered me from the mouth of these lions and these bears. David acknowledges his strength and where it actually comes from. And you have to get the image here, right? You have an entire army of men, the Israelites, dressed head to toe in battle gear. All of them scared to death to face Goliath. And here comes David with a staff and a sling. Like you can't make this stuff up, right? You know, it would be like Patrick Mahomes showing up to the playoffs with shorts and a t-shirt. I mean, it's the equivalent of that. You see this brother come up and you're like, I don't get this. What are you doing? Mahomes like, what do I need all that gear for? The Lord is throwing the ball today, right? You guys are probably all Kansas City haters. I have no idea. Sports, you know. Let's read what happens. We pick up in verse 41. This is what it says. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy, handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. 
Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Sometimes it's good to have a poet, right? It's good to have a poet who also has some battle experience, right? Who can also get gritty on the battlefield, right? It's nice. 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and took and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Man. Like we said earlier, Goliath, without realizing it, a lot of times is the hero that we want. But David is the hero that we often overlook. Right? David is the hero we often overlook. David doesn't have the stature. He doesn't have the armor. He doesn't have the mouth. He does have some, some of the eloquence that, that uh, Goliath lacks. In fact, in verse 28, if you go back, his brother uh, Eliab is angry at David for thinking he could even defeat Goliath. But here's what we understand when we read David's story, is that one of the traits of godly character is, is humble confidence, right? David didn't think he had what it took. He was convinced that the Lord was the one who wasn't going to stand for Goliath's defiance. Goliath was just a man. Well, and so was David. The difference was that David knew who he was, and most importantly, he knew who he wasn't. All Goliath had was Goliath, right? When Goliath stood up to David, Goliath had Goliath. David had the creator of Goliath standing in his corner. And that should do something to us as we contemplate that and reflect on that. David would later write in Psalm 56 when he was in trouble with the Philistines again. He said, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I trust, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Then he says this, what can man do to me? How could David write that? Well, because he lived through it. What can man do to me? When I have the Lord at my side. In the end, we see here David is victorious over Goliath and actually we're, we're stunned, right? It's the original underdog story. But we also want to ask in one sense, yes it is, but is it? Is it really, right? I want to do this as we end our time. I want to make three observations here about David's victory against Goliath and how this might help us think about what we look for and our heroes. 
for today. So here's just three observations as we kind of just read this last portion of the passage and how David just took this decisive victory from Goliath, but he did it in the most unorthodox of ways, right? The most underdog of ways. The first thing is this, is that David's courage was not the thing that achieved victory. Now, that doesn't mean that courage doesn't matter. It just wasn't the deciding factor. David's courage was not the champion here. It mattered. God wants us to be courageous, but if we try to run off of just courage alone, here's the question. Where does that leave us when we have a shortage of it? What about all the other times David would face armies and he would be praying before the Lord, saying, God, I, I, don't got, I got nothing. I don't have any courage. I need you. So the posture of David wasn't that he was the most courageous man in the camp. It was that he placed his courage in the God of the camp, right? Some of us walk out of church thinking, well, we think all kinds of things and walk out of church, right? We, we think, I, I just need to trust God more. Ronnie, I just don't trust God very much. I just, I, I, need, I know I need to read more scripture. I, I know you talk about prayer and I, I need to pray more. I just need to seize life. I need to be all that God has called me to be. You know, no pastor is going to argue with you about those things, right? But you don't achieve victory by guzzling five-hour energy drinks, right, in life. That's not saying you shouldn't be guzzling five-hour energy. I always got to qualify these things. Not anti-five-hour energy drinks, all right? If you rely, though, on external armor or internal strength, Things happen. Goliath-like things happen in your life. You become self-righteous when you're killing it, right? And then you become self-condemning when you're not. Why? Because you were relying on external armor. You were relying on abilities. You were relying on whatever internal strength that you've mustered up over the years, right? David's courage was grounded in God's character and in God's promises, David's battle against Goliath reflected David's belief in God. And a belief in God, it, it helps you choose the right battles. It helps you discern the right enemy. The biggest enemy in David's mind was not Goliath, right? It wasn't Goliath himself. It's what Goliath represented, somebody who was defying the nation of Israel. It took courage for the Israeli army to trust, listen, to trust David's trust in God. The WWF guy, the Philistines had, he only believed in himself. That's all Goliath had was himself. All Goliath had was his own courage. David didn't just have courage. David had the hand of God that he grounded his courage in. David's courage didn't achieve victory. All right, number two, Saul's armor, what we learn here, offered David nothing. Saul's armor, it, it, it mattered nothing to David. What good would any of Saul's armor have done against Goliath, right? David needed supernatural help and protection. By the way, this was a spiritual battle as much as a physical battle. When we get the language here that David uses, when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, we understand that we are not just fighting physicalities, but we are fighting principalities, we're fighting a spiritual war. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, Paul tells us. But how often are we like Saul? 
and we try to use physical armor for the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, how much do we look to things that weigh us down and offer no protections against attacks from what is our real spiritual enemy? You know, Samuel L. Jackson, you know, you know those, I think they're still, those Capital One commercials, what's in your wallet, you know? Only, you know, I can't, I don't have his voice, right? Most of us believe that's our protection. What's in your wallet? What do you have? What's the armor? The question really is who rules over your wallet, right? That's what David was getting at here. Because what will you do when everything goes awry? You have to ask those questions. It's important for you as you are growing and maturing in spiritualism to ask those questions. They're scary questions to ask. They're horrendous questions to ask. What will I do when a loved one dies? What am I going to do? Where will I be? What kind of armor is going to be helping me and protecting me in that moment? What will you do when a dream disintegrates? You have put everything, you've put all of your time, you've put all of your treasure in this thing that just, in a minute, it doesn't exist anymore. What will you do? What happens when you are unjustly accused of something and it literally affects your entire life and your welfare. What are you going to do? What are you wearing in that moment? What do you do when someone betrays you? What do you do when you get sick? What kind of armor are you wearing? What kind of armor will you put on? Man, we look at David here. No armor. No sword. A sling and five stones. David had no confidence in his tools were his tools necessary? Yes. Did God use his sling and his stone? Yes. But we remember that it was never about his skill with a sling. It just wasn't. And that's my third and final point here is that David and his sling were no giant slayers. David's sling was not the, was not the giant slayer. Israel's champion wasn't David. God used something as ridiculous and as insignificant as a sling in the hand of a shepherd to show his people that God doesn't call heroes. He calls humble servants. All it took was one sling and a stone to knock down Goliath. Do you see how little this had to do with David? Do you see how little it had to do with David? If it had everything to do with David, then what would they do when the next enemy appeared and they had a giant that was bigger than Goliath? What will you do in your life when the next thing is bigger than the thing that is so big in your life and maybe significantly big, right? What was David gonna do when a bigger giant appeared? Grab a bigger sling? Like maybe up the stone count to 10, you know? God had to be their victory. God had to be the source of their hope and strength for future victories. And here's the thing. David wasn't facing a giant. David was facing God. And who was Goliath in comparison to God? The things that become Goliaths in our life simply look that big and terrifying because we've set our eyes and heart on them instead of the one who actually rules the universe. And you know what? Let me back from that a little bit. Because when something is big and imposing and horrible in your life, you are naturally going to put your eyes on that. But it's not the only thing in your life. You have the opportunity always to shift your gaze 
to the one who is standing taller than the tallest thing that is threatening you and harming you and causing you grief and causing you trauma, whatever the case may be. So let me finish by asking this question once again, bringing us back to the beginning. Who are your heroes? For some of us, it's a political leader. We look to a leader to bring uh, peace, economic stability, somebody that can establish morality, uphold morality, and make no mistake, we, we should choose leaders who best embody those, those characteristics. And we can admire and we can be inspired by those who do. So godly leaders are vital, but they are not, not our ultimate heroes. David wrote this in Psalm 20, verse 6. He said, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fail, but we rise and stand upright. Did David use horses and chariots and weaponry when he went against the people? that were attacking his nation, 100%. But David says, that's not actually what we're relying on. That's not the thing we're focused on. That's not the thing that's biggest in the grand scheme of how we're going to achieve victory. For some of us, we've put the people God has placed in our lives to be the ones who save the day, the ones who are our heroes. It can be a friend, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a spouse who place all of our hopes and dreams on this particular person. We lay a burden on them that they're not only unable to carry, but unable to execute in our lives. For some of us, it's maybe an athlete, right? Which sounds kind of silly until you meet an Ohio State fan, right? Or a Kansas City Chiefs fan. I'm, around, I'm surrounded by all these dudes that are Kansas City Chiefs fans right now, so that's why I keep talking about it. Um, we can idolize an athlete to the point where our, our happiness and our wholeness is dependent on whether they win the game right? Here's another thing that, that could be sort of a, a false hero in your life. Maybe it's you. Maybe you set yourself up. Maybe you're like, man, I don't have people around me that I can look up to, that I can place all my hopes and dreams on. I don't have people around me that, I'm, that, I, that I feel confident with handing these things over to in order to protect me. Maybe it's you. Maybe, maybe you haven't had those people to depend on, so you've Learn to rely on yourself for everything. The problem with that is eventually you realize you're not very heroic, but you feel like you have to prove to everyone you are, which can you, you know, leave you in a place of despair. It can maybe even leave you in a place of depression. We get a different idea of how our lives can be when we read Galatians 2.20. This is Paul. And he says this interesting verse here he says I've been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me this is actually what we're seeing like an early version of with David the life that he was living was the life of the spirit of God of Christ in him it wasn't really him that was doing the fighting it was the Lord that was doing the fighting and you know we just default to looking for heroes. It's just the default nature of the human heart. 
but there's only one that we're meant to worship. Goliath might be the hero we want. David might be the hero we overlook. Jesus is the hero that we need. Amen? I mean, Jesus was Israel's shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep. Jesus was ridiculed by his own brothers and sisters. He was mocked and cursed by his enemies. Sounds a lot like what happened with David. Jesus cut the head off our real enemy. He bruised the head of Satan when he was crucified and he rose again. It's okay that you want a hero in your life. In fact, we're, we see that we're drawn to that. It's part of our nature to want someone to come in and be what we can't be. The problem is, is that we have a hero that we don't look to that is the everything that we want that person to be. His name is Jesus Christ. The moral of this story is not, man, Goliath was killing it, but I got to back away from him because he's more like a villain hero. Or man, David, man, he's the guy. He's the guy that I want to embody. I want to find someone like David. I want to surround myself with the Davids in my life. Again, on some level, okay. Let's find some nuance here if we can. But in an ultimate sense, we've been provided with the ultimate hero who's described as this. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You have the same hero standing in your corner in all the corners of life that you are going to be either collapsing or trying to stand in as David did when he faced a beast of a man. You have the Lord God, Jesus Christ, creator, savior of the universe, standing for you, fighting for you, protecting you, upholding you, humbling you, saving you. Who else do you need? Who else are you looking for to be your savior? That's the question we want to ask ourselves today as we scatter, as we reflect on these verses. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you've given us Jesus, our hero, the hero of the story, we find, um, we find ourselves, if we are honest, we find ourselves in Goliath. We find our, a little bit of ourselves in, in David and Goliath. And yet, Lord, we know that we've been given a person who came from heaven, who you sent from heaven to intercede for us to be the person that we long for, to be the hero that we long for, to be the one who has saved our soul from destruction. So Lord, I thank you that we have Jesus. I pray that we would be drawn more deeply to him in the same way that David was, Lord. Reveal those things in our lives that we are depending so deeply on. Surface those heroes in our life, whether it's a friend, a, a spouse, whether it's a political leader, whether it's ourselves, anybody or anything that we are putting all of our hope in 
to fight the battles that only you are able to fight and provide victory over. So God, we just pray that you'd humble us in that, that we wouldn't walk away so quickly without good reflection, without good contemplation, Lord, over those areas that may just be coming against us in ways that we don't even realize. Lord, we pray that your spirit would reveal what only your spirit can. Lord, that we'd walk humbly before you, that we'd repent where we need to repent of these idols and these heroes, which is what they really are. And Lord, instead that you'd show us in all of your radiance to be the only hero that we need and truly the only hero that we have. So Lord, we thank you for the hope that this story provides for us. We thank you that it, it, uh, it provides our hearts with some fresh and some uh, renewed hope as we scatter today. So Lord, would you do that work for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.